This podcast has now been referenced in keynote speeches at Arabia HQ, Architects Journal, BD Online, and GB News. Hello, Jason here. Before I start the podcast, I would just like to share some news. The Brock Architect podcast is now raising money for the Architects Benevolence Society. And I have set a target of £1,500 by December the 15th, 2023. Please consider donating as you never know when you yourself would need help. Links in the show notes. Now back to the podcast. This is season two of The Broke Architect. I have a question for you. Are you an architect and are you f***ing broke? If the answer is yes, it's what I've suspected for many years, as I am indeed an architect myself. This podcast is about debt in the profession of architecture, and I want to hear from you. Are you just surviving month to month with no extra money for savings? Or are you seriously broken in debt and stress and worry about your income? Or does your wife, husband, or significant other earn substantially more than you which gives you a great life, given the ability to choose your clients, when you work and who for, or have you attained financial freedom in architecture? If you're in the first two categories, surviving month to month or facing financial difficulties, how is this affecting your mental health? Are you suffering from depression or even despair? Please share, subscribe, and comment to support the channel. I have with me today Neil from Real Life Architect, which is a growing YouTube channel focused on architecture practice. Neil is indeed an architect, and I reached out to him after viewing his engaging and sometimes funny videos, which dispels the myths for homeowners focusing on the residential market. Now, firstly, welcome to the second season of the Broke Architect podcast. And firstly, can I ask, how are you today? I'm very well, thank you. Um, yeah, today's Father's Day, and uh, we just discussed that. But I, I did a bit of work this morning, and then I took my two boys to a cricket tournament uh, all afternoon. So I've been out in the sun all day, um, and yeah, I'm just relaxing this evening with that cider. And uh, yeah, this is it's been it's been it's been a pretty good day. Can't complain. How about you? No, wonderful. I'm, I've enjoyed my Father's Day too. And uh, I am enjoying my first glass of uh, Japanese whiskey. Can you please tell me, firstly, why you wanted to be an architect? And I also, because it's a broke architect, I just wanted to understand whether you thought it was a well-paid profession. Um, why did I want to be an architect? I was a reasonably good student, but I didn't have any one favorite subject or one subject that was you know, better at. Um, I did technical drawing as well as construction studies, uh, but I had an English teacher who's, a, he's a well-known author in Ireland, and he, he introduced me to modernism. And it was, it was like that sort of dead poet society kind of moment for you know, an inspirational teacher who's really changed the trajectory of your life. I went on to look up the prospectus on various topics thought about various things and then you know arrived at architecture because it, it had a lot of different topics within it you've got to do sociology engineering history technology there's a lot in architecture it takes a lot to be an architect 
And I didn't make many good decisions when I was 17, but this one is good. It stood the test of time. You know, two days are the same, and your two projects are the same. And I think that's still true now, as, uh, and it probably always will be true for architect. My father, while this was going on, I discovered my father had a distant cousin who was an architect, had his own practice. Yeah, yeah so we were, um, were sitting on the table one evening watching television. And this guy appears on TV for like a two-minute slot to talk about a building his bed. And my dad goes, oh, that's my cousin. And my mother nearly took his head off. You're, you're joking with me. We're looking at getting to study architecture. You never bothered to tell us your cousin is an architect. And I, you know, it turns out the guy actually had a holiday home near where I lived and where I grew up. And I met him. And I've met him several times throughout my career. Never worked with him or anything like that. But he did advise me. One thing he said is contractors will earn more money than you. And jobs will be precarious. If a recession comes along, you will probably lose your job. And I thought, well, okay, fair enough. So that was the sum total of real-world information I had going into this. Uh, and it's true, often contractors, particularly some tradespeople like plumbers or electricians, will earn more than your typical architect. Certainly property developers will. And uh, any well-run construction business should be pretty profitable, albeit that's precarious too. There's no getting around it. That's not a license to print money. That has its own problem with challenges. You know, salaries and fees were never discussed at university. I can distinctly remember being in my final term of final year, talking to a good friend of mine. We're still good friends today. He runs his own practice. And I was thinking of, I was at university in Dundee. I wanted to get a job in Edinburgh. I thought, Edinburgh's where I'll go. And he had worked in Edinburgh this year up. I said, you know, what should I expect to earn? What, what, what kind of salary should I be looking for? And he said, oh, you know, 15, 16,000 pounds. I thought to myself, that doesn't sound like an enormous amount of money uh, for what is going to be an expensive city to live in. So that's, that's it, but it was never discussed at university. And looking back at it, that seems kind of daft. Like, why were, why was, why was this not discussed? Why was, you know, business and fees and salaries not discussed, or at least even some kind of information from the institution about how you go about getting a job? You know, I've been running my own practice for almost fifteen years, and I get a deluge of emails from part ones and recent graduates asking for jobs. And they're often, they're badly written, they're badly structured. It's often, you know, dear sir, madame, or to whom it may concern. And I just think, you know, someone needs to sit these people down and tell them how you actually go about doing this. You, you don't fire off yeah. an email. You, you make a list, or you want to organize that list, whether it's by you know, geographic area, or type of practice, whatever, and you phone people. And you politely ask to speak to whoever it is that's dealing with hiring. Most likely not, there won't be a single person in most practices, but will not have an HR department. And you go from there. And eventually, once you have someone's name, then you send an email. Yeah, this just, that was the beginning of questioning why certain things were done certain ways <laughs> in the architectural education system, or why certain things were just ignored entirely. So I, I mean, I'm, I'm happy with my choice. I like being an architect most of the time, but it's it, it, it certainly has challenges that shouldn't really be as challenging as they are and could be resolved or addressed. I think we're, we're going to come back to this, but I really, how I found out about you is you've got this great YouTube channel. Why did you decide to set up this YouTube channel called Real Life Architect? Okay, um, there's, there's been a long story to this. Um, so back in 2019, I could, the, the same friend who was at uni and told me how much I'd expect to earn uh, working in Edinburgh, he's running his own practice, and um, that's another thing about architecture school. It gets really insular. You make friends for life. He ran a practice that did a lot of work in the licensed trade: pubs, restaurants, 
hotels, cafes, and was very successful. It was him and it was two other guys who were also good friends of mine, and we'd worked together previously. And he wanted to immigrate for family reasons, personal reasons. And he approached me in 2019 and said, look, he can't just announce this to his clients because they will just leave the next day and go elsewhere, which kind of ruined the business for the other two who were stuck working there. He asked, would I become a partner? And I said, yes, I'll do it. Because I figured at that point, I kind of got as far as I could professionally. I had, you know, I, I'd done pretty well. But unless I was prepared to take on staff and get an office and grow, I would then, I couldn't just, I couldn't see it. You know, it would all be the same after this. Whereas this held out the possibility of a, of a new chapter, a new challenge, bigger buildings, bigger budgets, commercial clients. And that's, that bad appeals to me at that point. So we, we discussed this, we did, we reached an understanding, we were going to sign a deal at the end of the financial year, March 2020. Because March 2020 had other ideas, because COVID came along. And in one morning, my friend lost almost a year's worth of work. One phone call after another, just wow. cancelled the job. Um, yeah, no, he's survived, the business is going, and the two guys who work with him are now partners in the firm. And he's still there, you know, and they're, they're doing really well. I'm really, really proud of them, really happy for them. But I decided I was going to stick with what I was doing. I do alteration and extension to, you know, upmarket properties in the Edinburgh, Lothian, and Fife area. But in the back of my mind was always the idea that I'd kind of gone as far as I could, and I wanted a new challenge. And so, 2021, I started the Real Life Architect and just quietly. For the first year, I didn't even show my face on the video. Really? Uh, I just, yeah, yeah. I, just, like, wow. I downloaded the B-roll and, and, and just used photographs and drawings and just spoke into a microphone. After about a year, I figured, yeah, I maybe should perhaps be a bit more engaging, a bit more personal, show my face, that kind of thing. I think by then, a number of my professional colleagues had uh, <laughs> knew I found this um, just randomly on the internet. And so I thought, like, okay, enough people know that it's, it's fine. I was probably self-conscious about it. I thought, oh, God, what happens when my friends find out? It took me, I think, about six or seven months to tell my wife what I was doing. She's like, you're disappearing into your office every What's going on in there? So I, I did, I, yeah, I set it up. It also helped with my, with my mental health a lot because the work was really stressful. You know, COVID was, was hard for everyone. Construction really suffered. The number of projects I've got under construction simultaneously has gone up and up and up. And it's, it's become nightmarish trying to keep on top of everything when the phone rings you have to answer it you have to respond to those emails because those guys are burning through a thousand pounds a day easily every day regardless of what they're doing if they're standing there waiting for you to revise the drawing it, you know you have to do it and so having an outlet where i didn't have to report to a client or a consultant or a contractor or the planners or anyone i could just make my own stuff have complete creative freedom talk about whatever i wanted to talk about whenever i felt like it was a real release. It was something was fantastic. It really helped me. And, and then of course I met people and I spoke to people and I had encounters like with people like like you, um, yeah. just approaching out of the blue. And it's it's been fantastic in that regard. Uh, and it has grown. And uh, you know it's now making money. I've got a sponsor. I've got potentially another one lined up. And um, so it's now actually making not enough to live off of. But it's I could see how you could if you got it big enough and and put it in that direction. You absolutely could make a living off this thing. So yeah, I set up a, a simple website to go with it last summer, um, realifearchitect.co.uk, where people, homeowners, can book consultations with me. So I just charge them for half an hour of my time. We look at either a property they already own and want to alter, or one they're looking to buy and to alter, or a plot of land they're thinking of buying to build a house on. Any of those three scenarios. Yeah, yeah just, just go from there. I've checked. I mean, I've had to talk through with my professional indemnity insurers about coverage. I've contacted the ARB to discuss, you know, the issue of 
accepting money for sponsorship because there's no guidance on that. Uh, or at least at the time I looked at it a year ago, there was no guidance on it. Whereas I was going around the internet and the, the General Medical Council had a lot of guidance for doctors, for example, <laughs> who wanted to accept money. We you know, work with examples. You can take money for skincare products because that's within your competence, but not for insurance because you know nothing about that. So whereas the, the R or EBA, and I contacted Rias as well, they were like, oh, no real idea. As long as you comply with the, uh, the um, advertising standards authority, it should be okay. Or he yeah. said the same thing too. As long as you're upfront and declare it to people, it's fine. So that's 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 how I treat it. It's it's yeah, you know, it's plainly obvious I am being paid to say these things. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, that's that's that. But yeah, I am also careful because I've been approached by a lot of shady characters who want me to tout their products. Um, so they, I will really only kind of work with firms whose products I actually or services I've actually used myself. Or professionally in practice um, and I'm happy to talk about those. I think that is the right way to approach things. You are a professional and we are in a new era of like social media and endorsements and so I was really interested in how you navigate this you know because sponsorship is you need we put a lot of effort into this you know I've got a podcast it's myself. Fun. I mean, I reckon it takes me, when I started first, it was about an hour of prep for every minute of footage. I've now got it down to maybe about half an hour of prep for every minute of footage. So that would be research the topic, write a script, because I, I, people say, oh, you sound really good on camera. It's not, I'm reading off a teleprompter. Yeah. So um, yeah, it's, all, it's all scripted, it's, it's, it's prepared, it's researched, and then you know, record it, uh, and then you edit it, and then you've got to upload it to YouTube, and you do, there's back of house things on YouTube as well so there's a lot goes into it but i've got it down to about half an hour of prep for every minute of footage roughly speaking wow that is a lot of time and maybe maybe let's yeah you know let's dive into this going back to practice i'm always interested because it seems to me the natural progression is to leave university and to go into a established office and yep. be a salaried architect. It just seems to be the way to get your skills, get your part three, and then eventually move into maybe your own business or into doing something, doing something else. So, why why self-employed architects and in a residential practice? Why is why did you do that? You make it sound like I planned this. Uh, <laughs> I didn't. I I had no aspirations to be self-employed. In fact, I I honestly thought I was gonna go on to do project management. I had worked for a number of firms around Edinburgh and with varying degrees of success and, and whatnot. I'd, I'd, gone, I'd left gone into a large commercial practice that one of my tutors had, without me realising it, had you know, suggested to them they called me up and they did. Sat an interview, got a job. And it was nice, it was, it was okay, perfectly fine, but I just didn't really feel particularly challenged. I then wanted to go and work for a smaller practice and that was a challenge. Uh, there was a lot yeah, we would have a lot of detail on that, but there were a lot of issues at that place. And then I left that and went to work for another bigger commercial firm. And I loved that. It was great. The boss was cool. The other staff were great. We had a real mix of people. The clients were fine. The projects were never going to set the world on fire, but it was really nice to work. I, I remember getting up in the morning on Monday and thinking, going to work. Great. Another week at work. I actually really liked it. And if the recession in 2008 hadn't happened, I mean, well, we'd still be there. But at that point in time, the only plan I had was that I would get my part three and at some future point go and work for a developer. Because I had met other architects who'd gone to work with developers and they're all driving around with nice cars, they've got a big house, they seem to be doing well. 
and I could, you know, I could join the dot and think this is this is the way to do it. Get get onto that side of the table. Don't be the guy doing the drawings. Be the guy telling the guy to do the drawings. Was was as far as there was a plan. That was the plan. Yeah. And then on, on, on the day Barack Obama won the American election, the first time round, like the news was full of banks failing, the economy is going down the toilet. And I remember going to work that morning thinking, at last, some good news. By half ten in the morning, I was out of a job, along with 20-something other people, because they just had lost all the clients. And it was all it was a lot of property developers um, and you know, some government clients and various other corporate firms that employed us to do what we were doing, but a lot of property development, and that just crashed. That just shut off overnight. And there was nothing else. I, I did spend a couple of months going around, you know, trying to get interviews, but there was nobody really hiring. So at Christmas 2008, I just decided, right, I've hit career rock bottom. I may as well just set up on my own and just see how it goes. And in my head, I thought, okay, this will be six months. We'll give it until next summer, and then I'll go get yeah. a you know, in for real job kind of thing. Um, and here, that was 15 years ago. I'm still here. So I think I was able to make it pay within about six months. I was probably earning the same as I was previously. And I was pretty well paid. I was doing okay as a, because I didn't get have my part three. I was, I was in the process of getting the part three. So I had to sit the part three exam, terrified at the, at the interview. I've done the exam, done the case study, all the log sheets, sitting the part three interview and as far as they knew, I was still at the other firm. Like, <laughs> our things at such and such and such firm. Oh, things are pretty bad. But I didn't lie. <laughs> um, but I was working for myself for about three or four months at that point. And I passed, got registered. So I set up, I mean, my first few months I was a designer. And then, you know, got on the register, became an architect. Yeah, so that's, if, if that hadn't worked out, I, you know, I probably never built the bar three. So, yeah, that was that. Was that. It, yeah, it, I just, I made it work. It, it went from being a sort of just survival. I had a house, had a mortgage, had to pay the bills. Something had to be done. I could not sit around. Yeah, this this worked. I phoned everyone I knew. I spoke to everyone I had on my contact list. And eventually, you know, some people were able to put me in touch with builders hmm. who were doing some work and they needed people to do planning applications and building warrants. And it kind of went from there. And eventually, you know, they were getting me work for the first year or two. Eventually, I was giving them work. So I tried every conceivable thing I could think of to get business to work. There's no, there, and I would say this to anyone who's setting up on their own, there is no one surefire way to make it work. You have to try everything. You've got to, you've got to throw stuff at the wall and see what sticks. Yeah, absolutely. You are a practice owner. Do architects yeah. suffer from Stockholm Syndrome? Do they not yeah. understand their value and they give? Like it seems yeah. to me that yeah. we give away far too much for free. No, I, look, I'm, I'm just one guy who sits in his garage and knocks out house extensions. I don't pretend to have answers. I've got a lot of questions. I've got a few observations and my own meandering experience. Um, but I, we think about our clients or the end users too much and our own ourselves too little. We put up with long hours, low pay. And I wonder, are the things we value as architects the same things our clients value? I don't think so. Um, many domestic clients, you know, they're fixated on the planning system, as an example. Um, and it's possible to charge very high fees for that stage with no questions asked, just because people have heard so many horror stories. But the actual amount of time you have to spend on, on a lot of planning applications, I mean, I win over 90% of my planning applications first time. It's, it's never really a problem. So that's one example of the difference between what you might actually have to invest in terms of time versus what someone ascribes as a value you have provided them. Yeah. 
if you want to look at it in pure economic terms, if you take a piece of land that's worth X and then you get planning to put some houses on it, it's no longer worth X, it's worth multiples of X. So there's no reason we shouldn't be able to get some share of that value as, as a profession. But I think we feel uncomfortable declaring that and saying, you know, I'm helping you to get richer, I want to get, get richer too. I don't intend to apologize for that. I also wonder, are some of us designing buildings for other architects, you know, in our heads? And it might be an outcome of the architectural education system. Some architects never seem to outgrow the need for approval from other architects. Because the whole process is you put your drawings on the wall and you have to explain to an older, more experienced person why they're a good design response. And I think many of us go around with this in our heads for the whole of our careers. I know I, I did for, for quite some time. And you kind of got to put that to one side. You, you, you see this when practices describe themselves as design-led or whatever. I think that description is ridiculous. You know, what an accountancy <laughs> firm describes itself as mathematics-led. <laughs> you know, we're, we're all designers, no matter if you're you know, designing an industrial shed or a luxury villa or an art gallery or whatever it is. We all do design. Granted, some people are probably just you know, a bit better at it than others, and that's fine. We're all doing design of one kind or another. We have this sort of need to explain our fields. Whenever you get architects talking about it, you know, I had this discussion the other day with an experienced architect who I have a lot of respect for, but he was quite clear that some people should charge more because they produce better buildings, however you want to go about defining better. I don't think that's really the way to look at it. Um, we should not feel the need to justify what we charge. You know, it is what it is, take it or leave it. I also think architects have a culture that prioritizes the product over the process. We endlessly discuss examples of high-quality architecture without really understanding how those buildings came about, what it took to get them built, the compromises, the arguments, and the skill and knowledge of the other members of the team. So, yeah, I, I think we, we need. I, I think we need to get out of our heads and start looking at the, you know, the bigger picture um, and stop worrying about you know, the last nth degree of detail in things because it's often not what the client. The people are paying for this are not often concerned with the same things we're concerned with. And it would really help us if we figured out what, what is it the clients actually value? And maybe that's where the money is. How can you expect a professional coming out of architecture school to feel confident, you know, discussing fees and yeah. understanding really, what really fees to charge? Salaries. Yeah. So where are you going to go with fees? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. No, no, it, it's absolutely... It's absolutely right. It brings me into the next question, you know, about the old thing of fee scales. So, yes, legally, we may not be able to ever bring back fee scales. But what are your thoughts on minimal fee levels? As, our, as all architects seem to charge different fees. Yes. So what can be done there? Short answers, I don't really know. But I have, I have some idea. As I don't know if there's anybody out there who cool. understands how, how our function uh, like, is, is anyone you know, within R uh, would be willing to consider the idea that if R were mandated to protect consumers, that's their primary role. They're not there for architects, they're there for consumers, which is fine. And they require architects to ensure that we're able to provide adequate professional technical resources when entering into a contract, or sorry, professional financial technical resources when entering into a contract, and to read that one off the uh, Code of Professional Conduct. Now, they already set a minimum amount of PII cover, could they not set a minimum cost for an architect's time as well, so that architects aren't shooting themselves in the foot and, by extension, harming their clients by not being adequately resourced? You know, if they are able to say, 
if you are an architect and you are charging yourself, if you're charging people for your time, this is the minimum you can do. Or if you're employing architects, you cannot charge them for any less than X. Whatever X is, I'm sure if that was ever put in, there would be a massive debate about what X is. Should X be the same in London as it might be in, say, the north of England or the Scottish Highlands or wherever? You can have that discussion. But I don't think it's too big a stretch to say that ARB could get involved from the point of view of protecting consumers. Because there's no doubt there are architects out there who are struggling and consequently their clients are being underserved. And that's not good for anybody. You need a certain level of income in order to pay your professional indemnity insurance. Yeah, yeah. And just all the other stuff. To have your software subscriptions, to have yeah. an office or whatever it is you're doing. Or even if it's, you know, it, it's, it's more basic than that, Jason, because you could have someone. And I mean, I was in this situation where I was, when I started first, I didn't have to charge. I asked some people and they're varying different responses. I thought, you know, I'm just starting out. I'm not worthy, which is one of the worst things that you can think of. And this almost inculcated into architects' heads that unless you're on the front cover of a magazine and got a couple of awards under your belt, you haven't really, you're not worth it. And that's nonsense. It's just not true. You've got people who will take on too much work. You know, they'll take, because they're charging X and they are they have to make a certain amount of money every month to pay their mortgage, pay the bills, keep the show on the road. They will take on a whole heap of work. And they will just, they will work seven days a week, late into the night, and they grind themselves into the ground and they cannot adequately serve all their clients. And they are, eventually a mistake is going to happen someone's going to be left very unhappy that's not healthy that's not greed that's just I mean, in, the, in the nicest possible way it's ignorance it's people just not really knowing what they're worth yeah. or how to set a proper value on their time and their expertise so yeah i think if i far came along I, I don't think we are going to fix this ourselves i just think the architecture profession is too fragmented there's too many of us running small little practices that we will not ever really agree on things it would probably take a central authority to come along and say, this is the price, you cannot go below that price. You can go above it any which way you want. You can set your fee structure any way you want, whether it's percentage fees, lump sum, hourly rate, day, day rate, you know, and whatever, however you want to do it, up to you, no problem. But you can't, when it boils down to it, allow your time to be built for less than X. Yeah. Would probably be a good first start. I don't know if it's possible. It'd be interesting if someone from ARB or someone who understands how ARB works could come along, or even how the law works, come along and say, is that in fact actually legal or allowable? I don't know. Yeah. Well, we do have a minimum wage, don't we, in the, in the country? So there is, there is that. Um, okay. Let's go on to this. Please, I'm really interested in this uh, sure. ECAN. So E-C-A-N. Yes. You know, yeah. can you just describe what it means and what's its purpose and, sure. you know, what's your involvement in um, ECAM? So it's the Edinburgh Chartered Architects Network. Um, and it was set up in the late 1990s in response to the creation of ARB. And one of the ARBs then, and we still have some sort of continuity, should be dead or incapacitated in some way. As an architect, if you're a sole practitioner, you have to have someone who can take on the project so that your clients are not inconvenienced. And our uh, ECAN was originally created so that sole practitioners around the Edinburgh, Lothian and Fife area could have another sole practitioner architect step in if needed. Now, sadly, over the years, we've had, I think, uh, to my knowledge, at least two occasions where we have actually had to do that. But it, if it rapidly outgrew this, because if you're working on your own, and most of our members, there's 30-something of us, if you're working on your own, most of us don't have staff. You're just there on your own, like I am, every day. And 
you don't have people to bounce ideas off of, and it's hard to organize things like CPD. So ECAN steps in and has members, there's a chair, there's a treasurer, there's a secretary, there's somebody who does CPD, and we, we organize these things for, for ourselves, and it's, it's really helpful. Um, but one and, and the most valuable thing we have is our email system. We have a single email address where you can send an email and everyone gets it. And it is no joke, it is active every day. And it's often questions like, have you encountered this building contractor before? Do you, you who is this planning officer? What are they like to deal with? How much should I expect to pay for whatever product or material you're looking to buy? Practical, technical, day-to-day questions, the kind of thing you would be able to say over the top of your desk in an office if you had multiple people you know, in an office, but we, most of us don't. There are a few people who have got staff, but they're the minority. Most of us um, are just you know, working alone from home, usually. Uh, so yeah, ECAN has been fantastic. And then you know, with respect to, to Riots and ARP and the other professional bodies on the mountain, they give me the most bang for buck. <laughs> it's, uh, it's 60 something quid a year. So if there are any soul practitioners in the Edinburgh Lothian Fife area listening to this, you can find ECAN on the internet, E-C-A-N, look us up. Friendly group of people and it's been fantastic to be involved with. The podcast talks about money and talks about the profession. Yeah but how do you think the profession could raise its income minimum fees or you know be profitable how, how does that how how does that work a few back in 2014 we can carry out a, a fee survey of its members and um, we just asked uh, you know like, uh, I think seven or eight basic questions you know what, what's what's your early raising your selection to, to choose from how do you structure your fees? Do you do percentages or lump sum or hourly rate or some kind of blended mixture of these? So on and so on. And, and we had some worked examples, like much like the part three question, you know, this is the house extension worth X. Here, this, here's uh, some the stages from the or plan of work. What would you charge per stage? And what we found the first time we did it was that the spread was massive. There were people down here charging 20 and 30 pounds an hour, people charging 90 to 100 pounds an hour. For what is on the face of it, the same kind of work in the same part of the world. Over time, we did this every year. What we could see is that over time, the spread of fees narrowed. There were fewer outliers, and there was, you know, certainly at the bottom, fewer people prepared to charge very low fees. Now it's still going on. We've got actually got our annual fee survey running at the moment. I'm helping run it, and uh, we still have a spread, but it's nowhere near as wide as it used to be. And so the problem here is you have people who are doing the same kind of work. Most of us do domestic. Not everyone does domestic, but most of us do. Most of us working alone, and we're all working in the same part of the world. And yet we have more than a 50% spread in the hourly wage. The same holds true for the worked example of fees. I think in the last year, we, we what we did is we gave an example of a project, and here's a standard set of fees that will be charged and asked, would people charge more or less of the same? And about 60% said they would charge the same or more, but 40% would charge less. So you're just scratching your head thinking, how could this be that if we're all doing more or less the same kind of work in the same place, that we're not really all charging the same thing? And I think it comes down to not being aware. But it, you know, the, the purpose of the survey was that it showed to members, here's what everyone else is charging. And we can't go around and say you are required to charge X, but it's no. a nudge. It's a nudge, it's a hint to go in the direction and to have the confidence uh, to do it. And that, that has helped. It has helped members massively to be able to know what everyone else in the same industry, in the same place, is doing. And it's hard to get that information in other places. So, you know, in your question about what the profession could do to raise incomes. Hmm. Now, the thing is, I realize I'm in a privileged position. Over the years, I've, I've grown up practice to the point where 
My clients are some of the wealthiest people in the country. You know, many of them will own properties in Edinburgh Newtown, easily a million and a half to two million a property, and you know, I'm doing alterations and extensions to those places. Edinburgh's an expensive place, so I'm, I'm looking in that regard. I can't pretend that what works for me might work for everybody, but I sometimes feel like I work in a Rolls Royce dealership. At the end of the day, I drive home with a Ford Mondeo. You know, it's, <laughs> and I do okay with this financially. I've, I've managed to get my, my financial situation to a point where I'm, I'm, I'm comfortable. But the people I work with are on another level. So I understand that if I'm telling other architects what works for me, they may, they may be in a different situation to deal with different kinds of clients. But the one thing I did early on, and there was no particular plan to it, was I published my fees on my website. So I think a few months after setting up on my own, I'd advertised, I think it was on Gumtree or something like that. And, and, and two people contacted me and said, you know, I want some work done to my house, please come and talk to me. Went and met them. And um, after a long discussion, we get to the point of what a charge, and I charge far less back then than I do now. And they both were like, oh, sucky lemons, oh, oh no, I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not prepared to pay that. And um, I went home, I was, I was in a rage. <laughs> and I said, I'm not doing this, I'm not wasting my time with this again. So I just created a page on my website. I had nothing much else to show at the time. I hadn't really built anything. And I just had some you know, images from the previous work and just a contact page, a brief picture of who I was. And I created an architect's fees page and I published a schedule based on construction costs. If your project costs X, I will charge Y. And over the years, I've refined it and refined it and broken it down into, I've got six stages at the moment, kind of mirrors the RMBA plan of work, but yeah. it's, it's feasibility studies, which I charge by the hour. And the rest of the stages I do on a sort of fixed price basis. So it's planning, building regulations, tendering, construction admin, and post-construction. And it's broadly in line with the construction budget for the project. And I give worked examples from my own projects. So I'll, I'll, whenever I put a web, uh, finished project on my website, I'll usually declare what it costs. Sometimes clients aren't comfortable with that. So I'll, I'll not, you know, they say, oh, I'd rather not say how much we paid for this. Fine. But for most of them, I will say it cost X to achieve this. Um, so people have an idea. So because it's not just architects who don't know what they're charging or what other architects are charging. It's often homeowners have no idea what yeah. these costs. They'll have heard rumors here, there and everywhere. So putting the financial information up front and center, the first thing it did was it stopped people wasting my time. And it, it, the second thing is it got the topic off the table. It is a take it or leave it proposition. If you want to hire me, here's what I charge. If you don't like that idea, don't bother phoning me. And that has worked. Um, and I've had numerous people over the years tell me that that was brilliant. They had all that information to hand. We didn't need to spend time wondering about it or arguing about it or hagging. It's there. You know, you can, you can see it. And, and I realize that that places me at some sort of a risk potentially in that other people doing similar work could say, well, I'll charge less than him. And I'm fine with that. If that's how you want to run your business, that your biggest selling point is that you do work for less money, then that's, all, that's up to you. That's, that's fine. I'm not in any way sort of, you know, threatened by that. Um, I haven't heard of anyone's ever done that, but, you know, hypothetically that could be going on. So yeah, I published my fees and I'm wondering, you know, to get around the, the lack of knowledge or understanding within the profession, something like that might not be a good first start. You know, I think we, we, we discussed this you and I before, where there's the, uh, the requirement in law these days for firms of a certain size to publish their salary information or diversity reasons. What's the correct term for that, Jason? EDI, yeah. That's it, there yeah. we go. So, you know, it, it wouldn't be too big of a stretch if you could say, well, architecture firms, charter practices should publish what they're going to say, what's, what's the daily rate or hourly rate for a part director? or a part one or an associate or whatever, what would be 
you know, a, a worked-out fee scale for a recent project. Here's one we did ten million pound development. Here's what we charged, and you can get that out, out up front. Um, I think if if that was made, I don't think it would happen. But if it was made mandatory, I think a lot of people's eyes would be open. You go, why am I working for these clowns when they're charging half what the other guy across the road is charging? Maybe I should go over there. From an employee's point of view, it would be very enlightening. You know, I'm, I'm my wife is a lawyer. She, she, she never liked being a lawyer. She left the profession a couple of years ago. She's technically still registered, but she works in the school now. And when we first started going out, this is 2006, um, I was amazed. Her and, and all her friends who were all doing law and working in law firms, they were all given fee targets. They were all told exactly how much they were worth to the farm every day. You have to earn us X. That's your day rate. You're being billed. It's this per hour, this per day. They all knew this, all of them. And it was just common practice in the legal profession for that to happen. And I remember working for the last firm, like the last real job I had, where we were phoned up by a large house builder that I was dealing with. And he said, look, we just have a small task for you to do. It. Can we take you about a day? How much do you, how, what do you charge per day? What's your going rate? And of course, in the construction industry, everyone knows what Joiner or Ricky's day rate is. That's a normal thing within construction, not just the professions. But I had no idea. So I went to speak to my boss. And of course, I had enormous respect for, still do, and um, asked him, you know, Boss man, how much do I say you charge me up for for a day? And he didn't know. And so he told me, look, I'll come back to you at the end of the day on this. At the end of the day, comes and I had to ring him up on the phone and say, look, they need an answer. What is it? Uh, just say 250. And I'm sure he picked that figure clean up the top of his head. <laughs> he had no idea. And I just, looking back at that, I thought, that is outrageous. How can you be running a business and not know what the day rate for your staff? And it's like other other parts of the economy, this is common knowledge. Everybody knows. It's like the lawyer, you know, the accountants know. Trades people on Sligo, but somehow it's not something that we do. You know, it's like it's beneath us or something. I don't know. I think that's. I think it's silly that we don't openly discuss this stuff. Absolutely, and it's a it's a common theme on the show. Uh, the other thing on that though is, you know, I don't know if you've seen this, but over the last I don't know, I've been practicing nineteen years, and um, there've been various surveys over that time that show look, look, look at the breakdown of who's doing what within the architecture. What roles do people have from part one associate, you know, five years post qualified, sole partner, director, whatever? And it consistently shows that about 40 to 50% of UK architects run a practice, either as a sole practitioner like me or a partner, you know, director of practice with other people. What that means is that over a four decade career, a majority of architects will move from being an employee to running a business at some point if the past is any guide to the future. Yeah. So that, that on its own should tell you that we really do need to teach young architecture students how businesses are supposed to be run, good practice within running businesses, and look for examples outside of architecture, because, you know, if we might, and I'm not trying to blame academia for this, because clearly a lot of the problems exist in the practice side. You know, we've made this mess for ourselves, so both academia and practice have, have to look at this. Um, you know, we get paid as architects for implementation, not for inspiration. We get paid for delivering a design, not for the design itself. Yeah. And the idea that this sort of debate between theory and practice, it misses a point because there's a third rail. It's theory, practice, and business. At this stage, we need to wake up and realize that. We should not see ourselves in business to make nice buildings. We're in business to make a profit. We should not feel the need to apologize for that. Absolutely. And I think it's even higher than that because you can be in a situation obviously where you're a salaried architect and then you move through the ranks in the in the practice 
and then oh, yeah. you become a director, a partner, and then yeah. you've got to suddenly deal with HR. Yeah. You've got to deal with paying people salaries. You've got tax. all of that pressure, the tax. So yeah. you're going to come to that probably, it's probably even more, isn't it? There's very few architects really who will go through the entire career without not touching that director yeah. partnership uh, level. We still a dirty thing. You know, I, I recently rewatched the Matrix film, and uh, that scene in where Keanu Reeves meets the architects, there's a great line in it, right? The architect yeah. says, there are levels of survival we're prepared to accept. <laughs> <laughs> and looking back at it, it appears there are some architects out there, you know, really have taken that to, to heart. They're prepared to work for buttons for the love of it. Um, and they don't need to. You, you, can, you can make a lot more with this, whether you're an employee or whether you're running the business. You know, I think that there's a, there's a lot more to be had in the profession, financially, if you just asked. I think you've just changed the name of this uh, title of this podcast because I love that title. Right. <laughs> 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 yeah. I, I, I hadn't seen the film since it was in the cinema. I was a first year architecture student, I think, maybe second year. And I, I saw it in cinema and it was, oh, there's an architect. Looking at it again 25 years later or whenever it is and go, wait a second, there's a deeper meaning here. There is. Um, yeah. yeah. So, you know, all businesses can trade either on volume or on quality. You can be either like, you know, McDonald's or you can be a Michelin-star restaurant. You can make a small amount of money on a huge number of trades or a large profit on a small number of trades or whatever it is. It doesn't matter. You can be selling lollipops or all that matters. The same, same idea holds true. The thing is, mm. it's really hard as an architect to trade on volume. It's really hard to crank out dozens and dozens and dozens of jobs and make a little bit of money on each one. Uh, it's, you know, it's much easier to set yourself up to trade on quality. So you're doing a small number of projects really well, and that's that's hard. Um, and for me, I got into my head. I don't know where about it, but I got into my head. I think a lot of architects have this in their head that unless you've actually got on the front cover of a magazine and won some awards, you can't do that. Mm. Um, you know, I won I won an award in May of 2016, and in the following January 2017, I got on the Urban Realm Magazine's top 100 architects in Scotland list. In the middle of all this, I nearly died of pneumonia. I was in a hospital when I got on that list. Oh, and, uh, and I thought to myself, right, okay, I had enough. I've clearly made it now, I've arrived and I've survived this thing, so I'm going to put my fees up. I thought, bugger it, I'll do it. And I just thought, I, you know, let's see what happens. And I did. My turnover went from about 45, 55 per annum to about 65 to 85,000 per annum. And the thing is, I'm kicking myself I didn't do it sooner because I didn't do the same kind of work. Nothing effectively really changed. It's just I now had an award and I've been on some sort of fancy list, and I've had my work published numerous times, and that's great, that's fine, but I think I bought into the idea that you're not really worth it unless you've got that, unless you're like established or whatever it is, award-winning architect. But I've been doing the same kind of work for at least five years prior to that, so I'm sitting there kicking myself thinking, mm. I could be making a whole lot more money years ago. Why did I wait? What did, why, did I, what, what, why did I make this decision? This is, this is silly. Why didn't someone tell me? <laughs> It's a mindset. So, you know, it's a if mindset. I'm doing anything in this YouTube channel it, it, for architects, it may be just to say, just go ahead and charge more and it'll be fine. Don't worry about it, it'll work out. Yeah, you've probably answered my next question. Was It's it just really, I'm interested in you as a practicing architect and how you yeah. make the, that business profitable. Is there anything else you want to add in terms of, I know, target. some top tips? It's a moving <laughs> target. Um, so, the, like I said earlier, the best move I made was, was, was charging more and you know, publishing my fees 
Mm. Um, taking on fewer projects each year and, and big, trying to get bigger ones. For years, I would always have maybe one or two big projects a year. And then, like when I started out, I was doing 30 plus projects a year. You know, and it was like knock a wall between two rooms or stick a dormer on a roof, whatever. And that was fine. And if you do them right, they can be profitable, but you are trading on volume. You're not trading on quality. You're just, yeah. you rattle it out, get it through the planning process, get a building warrant and move on. And that's fine. I'm not being judgmental about it. Um, but I always had one or two bigger projects, you know, worth a few hundred thousand pounds. What I've done is I've just I've started to try and get more and more of those. Now it's, it's easy to say I can try, but it's, it's not, you know, you're wasting on people basically phoning you um, or you're trying to go out and drum up work. In order to do that, you have to try every conceivable thing. Like you use LinkedIn, you know, I, I will admit I don't actually use LinkedIn at all properly. I have got an account myself and I will do anything with it. I found Facebook has been pretty good. I do not use YouTube this real life architect thing to promote my business it's an entirely separate endeavor right. i don't use my surname i don't use my practice name i'm not looking for more work plenty of work i that's not what this is that's a separate thing but i don't think youtube will be a particularly great way of marketing a small architecture firm because it's kind of global yeah but you know try everything be prepared to fail there's that quote that's often attributed to george bernard shaw i, I apparently he didn't actually say it it's fail fail more fail better try Try every conceivable thing you can think of and eventually something will work. It's stuff that used to work once no longer works much anymore. Um, and then and new opportunities come along. But so yeah, you know, work, work the network. Get every you know, people you know, people you've worked with before. I do a, an email shot to my former clients twice a year, usually before Christmas and usually some point in the middle of the year if I've just finished a project, I'll say, hey, look, I've done this, isn't it nice? But just before Christmas, what I found in business, and I can see this from my Google Analytics. And stick a little code on your website that will show you when people come to your website that just after christmas there's always a spike in people coming to the website and there's always a spike in inquiries and i think it's because people are sitting around at home over christmas with their friends and relatives going we need more space what should we do let's let's look up architects and google and, and get that working so you know there's there's all the things like that that you can do i'm happy to tell other architects to try to see see if it works for you yeah. Um, so yeah, in terms of making a practice profitable, things change. You also have to kind of learn new stuff, which is you know something something we do anyway. As an architect, you have to do continuing professional development. Yeah, I've heard the same is true for divorce lawyers as well. In January, really after Christmas. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my my wife was a lawyer. Anyway. Nice. Uh, <laughs> you too. Yeah. So you must have experienced some tough times. Did you experience, um, I'm sure you have, you're an architect, financial issues? And if so, really, what were these caused by and how did you resolve these financial issues? Um, I have had two periods come to mind. One was in 2011, the other was in 2015, where I had to cut my like my take, like my takings from the business are the single biggest expense the business has because it doesn't really do much else except exist to pay me. I do have a desk in a co-working office in Edinburgh, but I work from home most of the time. And so that's, that's only 180 odd quid a month. It's not massive. Hmm. So if, if the business gets difficult, the single biggest cost cutting is my own salary or dividends. Uh, so yeah, there were, there were periods when I had to cut like 200 pounds a week off my income to try and keep it going for like six months. But like back to that point where I increased my income, like by 20, 2018, and bear in mind I was 38 at this point, that was the first point in my life where I had more money than I needed. 
I was now able to invest. I was able to even seriously be thinking about my retirement and having, you know, a rainy day fund. So now I've got that. So if a period comes along where things aren't so good, yeah, I can probably sit that out for a year, easily, maybe more. Yeah, why do things, things went wrong back then because a number of projects got cancelled. They failed to get through planning, and so we never got yeah. the fee for the building warrant stage because that never happened. Or I think I had a dispute with a client over something, and they just decided to pull the plug on the job. There was various reasons why things just didn't go ahead, and fewer new inquiries were coming in. So quite often you can go through the sort of feast and famine, and that's not unique to architects, other businesses, particularly in construction, experience it too. And like right now I'm very, very busy, but I can I can tell already because I've done my cash flow analysis that come in the late summer, unless I get more inquiries, there's going to be some lean times. So once the, once I get through this body of work, go for a summer holiday, come back, I'm going to be advertising and marketing like mad to try and get new clients through the door. So, But that generally does tend to work. That email shop that I mentioned where I send people email just before Christmas, every year without fail, I'll get someone emailing me back going, oh, my friend got you an email because you did a project for them five years ago. Right. So that, that does work, or just ringing up old contacts, and you know, particularly on construction. You know, and I did a video on the website on, on the on the channel about how it is that architects can actually get pretty few referrals because most people don't do more than one extension. And if you crunch the numbers, I crunch the numbers in the video, you'll see that the odds of your typical homeowner knowing enough people to be able to sustain an architect with future inquiries or referrals actually statistically. Highly unlikely. Yeah. So what works is calling builders and calling engineers and calling suppliers, calling consultants and saying, look, do you know anyone who needs some work done? And invariably someone will. And that works. So to, if you're an architect and you're thinking of setting up, often having a team of people around you, a good engineer, know some good builders, know some good suppliers, that's that's gold. And I think clients point us out to clients and I mean I've done it. There's there's a there's a builder I work with in Edinburgh. Small guy, you know, he just he does one job at a time. Really, really talented bunch of guys from Poland. He's Polish, and they do they specialize in taking apart um, townhouses in Newtown and you know, luxury villas and put them back together again to a very high standard. And he even works with a small number of architects, and I'm one of them. So if you want, <laughs> if you want him, I, we come as a package. Um, so that that really works. So he he'll phone me up and say that there's a guy who needs some work done. Can you help? Sure. So, yeah, it's um, it's a movable feast. Being a sole practitioner, you have to you know, so being any kind of architect, you have to think on your feet. But yeah. it, it can be hard, and I suspect as time goes on, the economy isn't looking so good, and interest rates are going up, and inflation is still stubbornly high, and there's a great deal of political dysfunction and uncertainty about what the future holds, etc. So I'm, I'm thinking the next twelve months could be tough. Not very true, and it can be tough for the tradespeople as well. And you are very supportive. Mm-hmm of trades people so when building houses the importance of these skills you know you residential architect you deal with the trades people face to face you're you're at the coal face but yeah. isn't there issues with these trades people who work um on your projects being unable to live in the locality you know yes. where their work is located you know how do you yes. how do you What's your it's hard. Edinburgh is probably an unusual case in point because I don't live in Edinburgh. You know, we live forty-five minutes north of Edinburgh, right. so I drive. I typically will book all the meetings in one day of the week. Drive there; it's forty-five minutes or to an hour, and there and back, which is an ideal time to listen to podcasts. 
Of course. So, uh, architects. Yeah, for tradespeople, like, it, it's hard because property prices are so high, fewer and fewer tradespeople actually live in or near Edinburgh. And I've had numerous cases of jobs where we have a really good joiner or bricky or whomever. They're working away and then you want them to work in another job and they're no longer available because they've, they've gone to the, you know, an hour or so, an hour away in a smaller place because it's easier for them and they get their local work and life is easier and, you know, I, I can't blame them. But it's very difficult for an architect then to establish long-running relationships with, with the, these tradespeople. Of course, the bigger problem is um, de-skilling and fragmentation within the UK construction industry. We, we really found out the hard way after Brexit with so many people from Europe leaving the UK because they're fed up with it. My Polish builder told me that he thinks about 250,000 Poles have left the UK permanently. Many of them will have worked in construction. Um, he knows some of his guys have left because they just they had enough. And it's, it's not just the paperwork, it's the, um, as they perceive it to be, you know, the, the attitude uh, of some people in the country towards people who aren't from here. And I'm not from here, I'm Irish. Mm. But, um, you know, I, 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 you know, the system we have is that, you know, I, British and Irish people can live in each other's countries without any questions asked, but for everyone else to the you have to have this settled status thing, and that's not easy. But, you know, we've been talking about this for as long as I've been a student, in that we're not training the next generation of tradespeople. And I speak to tradespeople about it, and you get £7,000 for four years to bring in an apprentice, and you have to release them to go to college at uh, certain intervals, and you can't then bring in another tradesperson to cover them while they're in the, uh, while they're at college. And it's, the system isn't really worth it or working for a lot of builders, particularly smaller people, smaller firms. And then there's the fragmentation. Like when I started out first, we were only talking about 15 years ago, the firms I was doing work with, the contractors were building my projects, they could have two dozen guys on staff. And so they could, if there was a delay or someone on holiday or sick or whatever, they could just bring more people in the next day, no problem. But over time, sort of insidiously behind the scenes, builders have begun outsourcing. And so very, very few builders will have that many staff anymore. I've got a, a project with a large construction firm that's been going for decades, and they did used to have at one point 100 staff, but in recent years they've cut it down to 12. And everything else, it's just, it's agency workers. And so you never have the same guy week in, week out, week in, week out. You can't build that relationship. And these guys are also, you know, it's a gig economy, essentially. They, they have a degree of precariousness. And the reasons have been done, so they don't have to pay pensions, national insurance, paternity leave, holiday pay, all that stuff, and, and, and taxes are less. So it's, it's a cost saving. And you can see why a firm might want to keep their dedicated loyal staff, but yeah. they can no longer compete because the other guy's doing this. So for them to survive as a business, they have to go and follow the same business model. And that has led to more work for architects because mistakes happen because people don't have the knowledge, not just, you know, the core knowledge of how to build things, but they may, they may have just arrived on your site on Monday morning and they don't know a thing about it, so you have to go and brief them again. And then they might go away a month later, and then another guy comes in and you to brief him again. So it's it's swallowing time. So I have a lot of love for the construction industry. Um, my dad worked in construction in Dublin in the 90s and early 2000s, and I worked summers on building sites, really liked it. They earned crazy money. For someone who was like 18, 19, I was walking away with 300 pounds a week. And that's, you know, 25 years ago. Um, I, you know, I, as an architect, I, it wasn't until I was like, fully qualified before I earned kind of better money than that. But it's, it's a hard life. But at the same time, you know, if I, you know, I've got two boys. And uh, one of them told me a few years back, you know, Daddy, when I'm older, I want to be an architect so that we can be architects together. Stop me dead in my tracks. And I'm like, oh God, what do I do? I can't, I can't just shout and go, absolutely not. You're not, no son of mine is doing that. But mercifully, he's kind of moved on of his own accord and thinks about science, you know, and that's fine. But 
if if they were getting to a point where they didn't really know what they wanted to do and they thought, oh, I'll go to university because that's what my friends are doing, you know, go maybe take a year out, travel or work, work, you know, in uh, supermarkets, second shelves, or volunteer for charity, do something that you, you know, accept your year, put it off for a year, accept your course, put it off for a year, whatever, or go and get an apprenticeship and work in construction because actually, it, if you can make it work for you, it's pretty good, but you probably have to become self-employed much like an architect so it's <laughs> you know uh yeah construction at all levels we used to have this sort of snobbery about you know people and professions versus people tradespeople, but we are all in this together yeah because it's been forced at all of us and you know property prices it's the same for everyone and precarious work you know fluctuating demand for your services the whole lot it's the same I remember myself going on site the first time and meeting tradespeople. I think I was building a, a football stadium that was my first job Middlesbrough football right. stadium okay. uh, as you do and I was so nervous you know really like what, I just do you think was I don't know I just I just I felt that they just had so much more knowledge than I, I did until you get that site experience to talk the same language, you know, uh, as a yeah. tradesperson, so they understand you and they respect you, and I think that's that that mutual respect is absolutely critical. To I've seen it the project. other way around. I've seen it the other way around. Even with like much older tradespeople, there's a bricky on my jobs years ago who I told him to go call the engineer about a problem to do with the foundation. Yeah. Look, you've got the guy's details. His numbers on the drawing. Just call him. A week goes by, the call hasn't happened. I'm like, phone this guy up, like, what? Like, what's going on? Have you solved this problem? No, I just, and he made a string of excuses. And I kind of worked out, reading between the lines. The guy was nervous, he didn't want to call an engineer. So I called the engineer and I had a discussion for him. I'm like, what the hell? What's going on here? So there is definitely a sort of, I don't know whether it's the British class system. Yeah. Uh, or, or it's just, we, we appear to think we live in different worlds or whatever it is. There's that old joke that there's an experienced builder says he was in the construction industry for 10 years before he realized that architect with two separate words <laughs> yeah no there's yeah, I, I, I like building sites um, and I like talking to, to guys in, in construction and increasingly women in construction there's um, that's something that's quite recently you begin to see a lot more of uh, I think I was 40 before I met, I met my first you know, female electrician but I've met you know Tyler's there's a woman who runs a really great construction industry in Edinburgh so we're the world is changing yeah and, and going in a good direction um, and there's a lot of good things and we talk about it it's easy to get negative about the stuff that we're talking about here because money and things aren't going so well in the yeah. economy etc cetera, et cetera. but you know behind the scenes there are some good things happening and things are changing for the better in a number of arenas within what we do um, you know that there was this year for the first time that more than 50% of the new registrants on R were women although we have an awful lot of you know more to go in terms of other minorities and whatnot um, yeah. But it's, it, it, yeah, we are making slow improvements and changes and whatnot. I know one of your other commenters on one of your uh, on the podcast recently mentioned that it's happening just at the time when the profession is going to the dogs and, uh, and salaries are, 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 are dropping and it's becoming ever more precarious. And there's the danger that it might just suddenly wind up being only the children of the privileged who wind up doing this. Yeah, that, that is my fear. Absolutely my fear. Um, I do see it with the students at the universities but um, I'm really interested before we go on to the next one how do you protect your business from clients 
who pay late or don't pay. Um, I've, I've got another guy who I interviewed uh, called Grant. Okay. He's from Ireland as well. You might have listened to that podcast. If you haven't, I suggest you do. He's got a very certain way that he deals with uh, late payers. But I understand you use the RIAS standard appointment form. Yeah, I do. Um, I, maybe I've just been very lucky. I think I, I toppled this up, but in 15, almost 15 years and 220 projects, I've been stiffed a grand total of £80. Wow. Um, now, I've had numerous people pay me late, and it's usually a married couple. He thinks she paid, she thinks he paid. And I had one where they were paid, they paid two years late. Um, they owed me £1,000 for work I had done. And at that point, we were at the point of firing the contractor, determining the contract because, for a variety of reasons, the contractor had spectacularly underperformed. The client was deeply unhappy. It emerged the contractor hadn't done certain things they were supposed to do around this yeah. property. And I contacted my PII, a good architect, and said, look, and a situation has arisen here where I think the client may blame me for not having found the things the contractor was supposed to have done. And they may, you know, whatever, they may have a go at, at pursuing me for this. They didn't, as it happened. But I told my PII, I also said, um, I've issued an invoice for one work done in the last month, and they've not paid it. I've issued a reminder, and they've not ignored the reminder. And this was around Christmas time. Yeah. And my PII said, do not pursue them for that. Don't chase them. Don't go after them, because that will only antagonize them. And then they really will try to sue you just for the hell of it, because you've annoyed them. And so these sorts of scenarios can occur where you're sitting there thinking you are, you've got the bank to rights. They, they have nowhere to go. They owe you the money. And any court will uphold that. But your PII is telling you not to pursue it. Two years later, the guy called me up and said, look, we need to get the completion of the certificate from the council. Can you help us? I said, sure, no problem, but you're going to have to pay my last invoice, which is overdue two years ago. And he was flabbergasted. And again, it was the, I thought my wife had paid it. She thought I had paid it. Terribly sorry. Here's a thousand pounds. These sorts of bizarre scenarios can, can arise, but I have never really had major problems. The 80 quid, I think, was a guy who just wanted me to do like an hour's work years ago, right at the end of a job. And he just decided not to pay it. I'm like, oh, I can't be bothered pursuing this for 80 quid. Off. But that was it. So I mean, in terms of methods of avoiding this, I mean, I just have to say, I, I don't really know. It's I've been very fortunate in my career. And I get asked this a lot by my Irish family because late payment and non-payment appears to be a major factor within construction in, in, in Ireland. And uh, they're just amazed. How is it these people, they just pay you? What are you doing? I don't know. Maybe, maybe I'm just going to very charming individual, or maybe it's because I'm six foot three and they don't want to pick ah. a fight. So I, I don't know, but um, I've, I've not had, fortunately, not had massive problems in that regard. The vast bulk of my clients are lovely, they pay in full and on time, and I don't have that scenario arise. Ah. Um, so I, I don't know, it's a short answer, I've never actually had to encounter it. But that comes back to the idea we said earlier of there should be a sort of business school type course within our uh, architecture school teaching you how the standard method of dealing with these problems is because we're not you know, other professions will have this issue too there, there have to be other ways of dealing with this or standardized ways of dealing with this that are uh, clever ways of dealing with this that we just don't know or at least i don't know and i would like to know yeah to satisfy my own satisfy my own curiosity uh, if nothing else but i would say this i mm. i use the raya standard form point very good but i also when I give out a fee code to people, I have my own document, it's a project guide. I've been refining it for years. 
and it breaks the process down into six stages, and I define them. And it's written from the point of view of a homeowner. And I suppose that's really why the real-life architect thing has taken off, because I spent a lot of time explaining these steps and processes to homeowners. That's the bulk of the videos I make are about that. Right. How long will it take? What will it cost? How do you find the right builder? What's the difference between the, plan- between the planning system and the building regulations? All that sort of stuff. And to a you know, typical architect might not value that or understand why would you ever need to explain it to someone. But I have met people as recently as last week had a very wealthy young man who wants to buy a huge property in Yorkshire. He, until recently, was completely unaware the planning system existed. Just didn't know. No idea. He just assumed in his head that if you own property, you can just go and build stuff. And then he get informed that, in fact, actually, there's a whole process, and it's not at all certain. Um, I put a flowchart into this document, and I looked, it's got 44 steps. It looks mental when you see it, but it goes step by step from the first phone call to a completely finished building with your habitation or completion certificate from the local council. Every decision you need to make between these things at every stage in the process, color-coded. So I made that up myself. And I've had people compliment and say that that clarified things. A lot of my clients work in finance um, or high up in large organizations, and they, they see these this that makes a lot of sense now. Something that was kind of opaque beforehand, explaining it to people is such that someone who's never set foot on the building site, yeah. has never worked an architect, can understand. That's really valuable, being able to convey to people the process, not the product. It's all well and good saying, I make nice, pretty buildings, here's some pictures of my previous work. That's great. Most architects can do that if they've been working for a few years. But actually conveying how you get from that first phone call to that finished building in easy to understand steps is valuable. Yeah, plain language questions. It's yep. yeah, it that that is a really good point. You know, your YouTube channel is almost like a public service in a I sense. So. You could see it. <laughs> yeah, you could see it. It's almost like the BBC. You put yourself out there, Neil. You do, and you know, I know myself on LinkedIn. You get trolls, and you get yeah. trolls on. Uh, you probably get the the worst trolls are on Twitter, definitely. Um, but you, but you do, but you do get trolls on uh, YouTube. You know yeah. what what sort of comments have if you received, and how do you deal uh, yeah. with them? Yeah, I had to ban a guy recently. Um, the video I made where my son said he wanted to be an architect, and, you know, whether or not I regretted being an architect or, or not. Um, there was this guy who just kept like every week he would post one or two. For this went on for several weeks. I kept seeing the same username come up again because I did the, the YouTube app that you would regularly use if you're watching YouTube. There's a separate app if you're a creator that, that shows you all your comments as they happen so you can respond to them immediately and your analytics, etc. So I'm like, this guy essentially kept repeating the same idea that only really stupid, academically dim-witted people would ever choose to study architecture, where it's like really intelligent people would study a science. I'm like, okay, right, you made your point, even though maybe sort of your band. So yeah, that was fairly straightforward. I, I made a video over a year ago, a well-known YouTuber called Colin Furs. I don't know if you've ever heard of him, but he's got over 12 million subscribers. He's in England. He used to be he's a plumber, or used to be a plumber, and he's been around since YouTube began. He makes contraptions, all of them quite dangerous, and he's brilliant. He's a hugely entertaining guy, really love his stuff, because you don't often see people make things. He sits down and from a very workmanlike point of view, plans out what he's going to make. He has a whole metal workshop in his house, and he builds things, and they're fantastic. But about 2015-2016, he built a bunker in his back garden of his suburban house somewhere, I think he's in Lincolnshire. 
and he dug a huge hole with this enormous steel box and built an enormous man cave slash bunker under his back garden. Fantastic. During COVID, over the course of a couple of years, he built a tunnel between that and his house, including undermining the foundations of his house. Like he was at one point in his, in his tunnel looking up at the underside of the foundations of his house. And I'm sitting there thinking to myself, has he got permission for this? And then shortly afterwards, he makes a video saying, I didn't get planning for this, but I got it retrospectively. In his words, he thought it was better to ask for forgiveness than permission. And so I made a video in good faith, and I, I was clear to say, I'm a big fan of his stuff, I subscribe to his channel, have done for years, really like what he does. But yeah, because he's got 12 million followers, some people will look at this and think, that's fine. I can do the same thing. I'll stick a dorm on my house and not worry about permission. If someone from the council says something, yeah. then we'll deal with it after the fact. And I, I laid an anecdote from um, a plumber I knew, knew a guy who had a house and was trying to sell it. And he had made alterations to the house. He squeezed in an extra bedroom upstairs into you know a 20-year-old mid-terraced house in, in Edinburgh. And slowly but surely it became apparent there was a problem here. He'd put it on the market, and the, uh, the, the buyer sent the surveyor from the banks to set this for the purpose of a mortgage. He goes, wait a second here. You, do, you, do you have permission for this? No. Right. He then called the, the council and says, I'm, you know, I need some kind of permission for what I've done here. And they were like, yeah, you need to make an application for uh, completion for no building work was originally applied for. Yeah. Um, or to pay a fee from the form. We thought this was really simple. Maybe at this point I need an architect. And I go to his house and go, this is not a paperwork exercise. There is nothing we can do here that will approve this. Like he had a corridor that was 600 millimeters wide. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. He split a bedroom in half. And so one half wasn't getting adequate daylight or ventilation because he just ran a partition right up to a window. He'd done numerous things around the house that were just, and I had to explain to the guy, this is not about filling in a form and paying a fee and doing a drawing. You're going to have to get the builders back to take this apart and either put it back the way it was or do some other variation that complies with the regs. But as it is, ain't never going to get a completion certificate and consequently you'll never get a mortgage. And so therefore you're never going to be able to sell it. That leaves aside the issue of insurance. If someone was parked in this property, the insurance would probably not pay out. So I relayed these within the video and it just, oh God, it went, it went mental. People were calling for the huge <laughs> fan base and they were like, they just leave common alone, you know. Who do you think you are? It's his house. He can do whatever he wants with it. And there were a few people within this who were probably of the libertarian mindset who thought government, if it has to exist at all, should be as small as conceivably possible and you know stay out of people's private dealings. You know, there should be no kind of statutory oversight of what people do. And you just cannot argue with these people. That was one of the worst where people had either either felt triggered because they had never understood that there were statutory approvals for getting things done to your house or they had a political axe to grind with the fact that these things exist and that you have to deal with them and there's no point you know i don't make the rules they just are what they are and you have to deal with it so i made this thing in good faith and you know some people did comment and say look you're getting real i'm not sticking but what you're saying is valid and perfectly yeah. fine but it just went mental it's one of the most popular videos on my channel <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I did, it's fine I, you know, I, I did worry about it for a while i was too worried about it i have had a few people who are you know outright ignorant um picked on the fact that I have an Irish accent but I work in the UK. Yeah. But, you know, for the most part, I have to say, for the most part, the comment section has been okay. Yeah. But, yeah, I have experienced some some of this nonsense and it, it, I can see how we can get people down. I try not to let it worry. Good. Good. I, I, as long as it doesn't affect your mental health, 
Yeah. I've yeah. not had too many architects come on. I've had one or two purporting to be architects. One guy challenged me to prove that I was, in fact, on the art register. And I'm like, look, I'm not using my surname. I'm not touting for business as such. Sawed off, so your hook. Uh, you just have to take my word for it. I'm on the art register. And I've had one or two others. I think really what we just two others making points about the buildings because I show some of the buildings I've designed and, and yeah. you know the process of construction and, and the finished products etc people picked up oh that's really hideous I don't like that at all and you're like fine I'm not asking I'm not going to flip this on your house <laughs> but you can get you know that's fine but yeah you get a few people who are, who are like that um, and that's yeah. just what you do it's just well, I can, I can confirm that you are, because uh, I know your surname. We're not going to discuss it on the podcast, but you are indeed an ARB registered architect. Thank you, Jason. There you go. What would be your approach to coaching young architects or even architects at any stage who want to learn how to make architecture profitable? Your YouTube channel is focused at yeah, uh, residential, residential clients, but... Yeah. I think I do, it also yeah. helps young architects. It is, I'll have to admit, it's one of the regrets in my career to date that I've not, I got a lot of help when I started out from a variety of older architects throughout my career, often at crucial stages. And I kind of feel I should pay that forward or pay that debt back, however you want to describe it. And I've not really had the opportunity to do this. In fact, recently, um, a guy I used to work with who I haven't spoken to him for 15 years in person, contacted me asking if I could help him get through the part three. And I had to, I mean, we looked at it and we really did try, but I just don't have the time right now to do this. So I do feel that at some point I, I would like to be able to do it. And the channel to a small extent is my attempt at reaching out and, and trying to show not just homeowners, but also, you know, student architects or people thinking of studying architecture, the reality of what that is going to be like for you. And, you know, if I can, I think you're kind of possibly doing the same thing here. You know, there's been a massive increase in the UK in the number of architecture students over the last, I looked it up. It was, um, I think there were 2,000 first year students in 1998 when I started studying architecture. It's about 4,000 now. Yeah. And you can see the number uh, of our registrations increasing over the years as well. Um, it went from something like five or 600 a year to 1,400 a year over the same period. So it's, you know, a lot of people joining the profession. That would be fun if they all were fully aware of what's involved in the job. Yeah. And I suspect people like you and I who could go on and talk about the reality and talk about the problems and maybe try to suggest solutions, but those solutions don't yet exist. I don't know, are we going to have a negative impact or fewer people decide to register on architecture courses having encountered what we produce? I don't know. You know, architects who are big on YouTube, like Dami Lee and Daniel Teachner, yeah. They have made videos of the problems they've had in their own career. Danny Lee's, you know, spoken about you know, people, you know, some old guy harassing her while she was working. And Daniel spoke about the problems he had working in London, working in the UK, and he's gone off to Canada. And you know, good for him. And, uh, those videos are not particularly successful in comparison to the other videos that they have made on their channel. The ones that seem to really get a lot of views are the ones that where they show. You know, really nice designs, very well photographed, and they're talking yeah. about you know interesting buildings. They'll get millions of views. That's great. But if you talk about the reality of the profession, the video is unlikely yeah, to do no particularly well. Yeah, yeah but I, I would hope because I I don't know I, I don't know for a fact 
if the increase in number of architects is the reason, is there's a simple supply and demand thing that we're not seeing an increase in salaries or salaries going backwards or whatever. It's probably playing a role. I don't think it's the whole story. Yeah, stranger things have happened where people have been able to point to certain things that they encountered in the media leading them to make certain decisions with respect to their career. My wife said that part of the reason she doesn't study law is because she watched Ali McBeal in the 1990s, a woman in the legal profession, which was rare at the time and is now in law, at least in this country, is a majority female profession. So I don't know if that's, but you know, you, you hear of stories of this where people encounter things in the mass media um, and YouTube could count as that and podcasts could count as that and Instagram could count as that, where they see these things and think, wow, maybe, maybe I need to think about this. So yeah, if I make content that describes the reality, the name of the channel is real life architect and warts and all, it's all there. I'll talk about how much money I earn and our turnover. Uh, I'll talk about the reality of the long hours, the late nights, arguments with builders and clients and difficulties with the planning system, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And it's not about pretty pictures. There's a process. I talk about the process, not really the product. Whereas videos about the product seem to do very, very well. <laughs> I mean, to be fair to you, you are um, probably, without you realizing it, educating many young architects and mature architects in the profession um, who are in private practice. So. I'm going to let you off the hook on this one, Neil. All right. <laughs> but yeah, we'll come to our last couple of questions. So sure. based on what you have seen in the industry, you know, what is your conclusion on how architects are prepared for business? What could be improved in education and also in practice to equip architects with the right skills to succeed? Because we want architects to succeed. Um, I mean, we, we touched on the previous question on the idea of whether there's too many architects coming out of universities. There's this idea there among the colleagues called elite overproduction. It's not just architects, and it's not just this country, but over the last quarter century or so, developed Western economies have produced huge numbers of graduates for all manner of different subjects, not just architecture. Whether that's the cause of the problem, I don't know. The, the whole theory of elite overproduction is that it's those frustrated elites who feel that they've been cheated in some way that go on to potentially radically change the system. And the argument in the UK is that, say, Brexit, as an example, couldn't possibly have been voted through just by the working class. There aren't enough of them. It had to involve people who went to university and are perhaps maybe not getting as much out of it as they thought. I believe that's the theory. I don't know if that's true. They are the same thing with Trump in the US um, and that people are, you know, we are living in a point in history where it's kind of become apparent that the old free markets, Thatcher Reagan way of running an economy is kind of on its course and is perhaps coming to an end and that there's going to be far more state intervention in the economy perhaps going forward. You know, even the Conservative Party in this country are, you know, talking about pumping more money into certain parts of the economy, the, the free market let the market decide model, no one really believes in it anymore. Uh, so I, from how that's going to affect us as architects, I suspect we're going to potentially see the possibility that you could enact things like fee scales or that you could enact things like minimum mandatory fees, like we discussed earlier. And it's not going to be dismissed out of hand as, oh, well, you can't do that, that's socialism. Well, <laughs> someone might go, well, this might actually solve a real world problem. Let's try it. Um, so yeah. I, I don't know, but I, I do know for a fact we should be teaching more business. I'm not the only architect that's saying this. 
it's not just the argument between, between theory and practice. You know, you need both of those things. You need to know how insulation goes into a building, but you also need to know how to make things well proportioned, as yeah. an example of theory. You have to have both of those things. There's no conflict between these things. You must know them. But if you have a situation where more than half of architects in the UK historically run, have run their own business, and you could then reasonably expect that any graduated class of architects, half of them or more, are going to be running a business, why are we not teaching them how to run a business? You know, there's a vast repertoire of knowledge and theory and experience out there in other fields that we could tap. And we're really good at technology transfer as architects. We're going and finding ways of building and making things in other arenas like marine architecture, you know, heavy engineering, and bringing it back into what we do. But we don't seem to want to talk about how they run their businesses. You know, can we find out how it is the lawyers and the accountants and the engineers run their businesses and make more money than us? And maybe perhaps apply that to what we do and yeah. see how that works. That's a fantastic. So I don't have answers. I have observations <laughs> and I have some questions. I've got more questions than I have answers, Jason. But um, yeah, that's that's my thought on that. Brings me back to the thing I've been saying on many of the episodes that I'm not saying you can't be free and design wonderful things and explore possibilities in your architectural education, but it's got to be balanced. Because I don't feel I don't feel the balance is right. I mean, I think the degree is definitely where you you explore architecture and, and it's five build years. it. And it, yeah, and, it's and we've five, got the longest course. Yeah, I often wonder. Could you, you could probably squeeze it down to four. The uh, the stuff that's currently got could probably be crammed into four. Yeah, but if you want to have five years, the cynic in me thinks that people do this for stages. They're like, oh, but you know, it's just like medicine. It's five years too. Yeah, um, no, I'd spent the last two years on business. <laughs> if, 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 if I could have dictatorial power, right? The Lord knows what I would do. But one thing I would probably mandate is that that final year, you're not designing anything. You're yeah. doing a mini. Agree. We're learning how to run a business. If you've gone five years through this thing, you know, going to the part three to learn how to, you know, do a fee question is not sufficient. That's not enough. That's nowhere near enough to equip a person with the reality of running a business. We need to learn from others, and you won't be getting taught by architects either. You're going to have to outsource this and go and find knowledge from other areas um, of industry and business who study these things and learn from that. No, I agree. I hope ARB and RIB are listening because this is the perspective of architects really practicing and they're yeah. telling me this every single episode. I wish I knew more. I'm not preaching. I'm not trying to say I know or I have the answers. I feel that the more I learn, the more I realize how little I know. Um, and I wish I had been equipped with these ideas and this information earlier. Um, after I lost my job in 2008, I began subscribing to The Economist. And I found that aside from learning things about business, I also <laughs> It, it informed me of things that many of my clients know. So that when I'm sitting in their homes talking about knocking seven bells over, many of them work in finance um, and being able to speak the same language or at least understand the world that they come from has been an immense advantage. Um, so yeah, I do also read like you know the AJ Libra Journal, um, but I also I, I, I like reading the Economist, long-term subscriber to that. So you can learn a lot if we just look slightly beyond. Uh, the world that we inhabit as, as professionals and stop googling pretty pictures of buildings we might learn something that advantages us wonderful so my final question go for it is the title of the podcast how, how do we make architecture 
great again. Great again. No, I think we realistically we need to start teaching people how to run a business because uh, it is a business. I've often wondered about the, the way we use the word practice, and it does it kind of inculcate the idea that we are somehow operating remote from the real economy and doing something unrelated to normal business. We're not. We're business people. You know, construction is probably the second most expensive thing humanity has ever done. Only warfare costs more yeah. um, in terms of destruction and you know, loss of value. We actually make things, and it is enormously expensive, quite often an elite endeavor. There's no getting around that. You know, not everybody is capable of owning land and capital to procure a building. So we need to be conversant in these ideas. We need to be comfortable with these ideas of talking about money, talking about you know, rental yields, talking about how you know, interest rates, talking about cash flow statements, talking about different pricing models. You know, can you operate uh, price discrimination within an architecture business? You know, can you charge effectively different fees for the same service depending on whom you're charging it to as an idea? Uh, and a lot of architects will go, what is that? I've never heard of it. Uh, and, but it actually can make you quite a lot of money for no additional effort. So these ideas, I think, you know, the theory side of things will take care of itself. We've got lots of people in academia who understand these things. The practice side of things, we're good at building stuff. We know how to do it. And we can teach young architects how to construct buildings. But I think we are the, the big gap really in the business. It's not the fight between theory and practice. That's... Yeah. That's an illusion. It's really teaching ourselves how to run businesses. If more than half of us are going to be doing it at some point in our career, we need to start at the earliest possible point. And you hear people in academia, you know, they, they maybe have a perverse incentive to not teach practical or business skills at university because so many students don't go on to practice architecture because of the huge dropout rate. Yeah. Um, when I was a student, they would say they were teaching, quote, world architecture. Fine, but I suspect what they were really saying is we want to bring in students from outside the UK and EU so we charge them sky high fees, and that's what keeps this show on the road. And, and it's true. It's trend. You know, it is true. And, and that's fine. They're businesses too. I'm not, I'm not saying that they're being cynical or, or you know, derelict in, in their duty to the students. They're just following a business plan, and it works, and that's fine. But it has consequences. And I don't yeah. see why you couldn't just have a few modules as they go along teaching them how the world of business functions and basic business concepts. I met an architect a couple of years ago. He just set up on his own. We were having a coffee. And during the course of the conversation, it became apparent he didn't understand how taxation functioned. He thought, having done only a year in business, he kind of figured, well, I owe, let's say, $5,000 of corporation tax. And if I then purchase an item worth £5,000, that's I, I won't owe any more tax because it's you know we set off against tax and that is not how that works and no. you can see the blood drain from his face <laughs> <laughs> you're like oh my god and you're like an otherwise nice guy intelligent capable relatively well educated you know you, you knew what he was doing he was competent as an architect he was registered you know he passed all the necessary exams but he didn't know the basics of how tax functioned and he could have bankrupted himself now that's that's absolutely fantastic neil um this podcast has provided so much value. I really want to thank you for being on the second series of the Brock Architect podcast. I'm, I'm going to drop all your links in the... Just really want to thank you for coming on this show and giving your perspective as a, you know, a sole practitioner 
uh, residential architect. I just think um, what you're doing on YouTube is incredible. People should check out your channel because if I was a homeowner wanting to, you know, get the services of an architect, it's all there. You, you cover everything. Do my best. Thank you so much. It means a lot. And um, yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I'm binging on your podcast and it's been fantastic. Just listen to the voices. But yeah, I, I, I do hope that we can get the message out beyond just people who are currently architects, but to people who are thinking about becoming architects. Thank you so much. It's a wrap. Thank you. Nice. Please share, subscribe and comment to support the channel. Okay.